Good morning to you. Please turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. I'm waiting for someone to say, finally, chapter 2. By my reckoning, uh, we were in chapter 1 for a wee while, seven sermons, but I promise we'll be even longer in chapter 2. There is a lot. Uh, You ready for an understatement? There is a lot uh, packed into this chapter. But as you're finding Colossians uh, chapter 2, I want to say a few words on, this will seem strange, but bear with me, there is a point. I want to say a few words uh, concerning the Hobbit. The Hobbit. What has that got to do with Colossians chapter 2? Bear with me. I first read The Hobbit as a, as a teenager, maybe 14 years of age, and recently it uh, has gained some notoriety because of the films based on the book. It's an interesting literary genre, fantasy. Uh, many of us familiar with C.S. Lewis's uh, the Narnia Chronicles. They're very unique, C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, because Lewis was something of a theologian, although a little quirky in places, just putting that out there. He was, and you need to read Lewis at times cautiously, carefully, but a theologian. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, for example, uh, Lewis has a definite theological agenda. He is seeking to convey through the literary genre known as fantasy the great biblical truths of redemption. And even in uh, other of his novels in that series, series, he's dealing with great biblical truths and great biblical principles. Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien is not like that. Tolkien is not a theologian. And he did not write uh, The Lord of the Rings nor The Hobbit uh, with a theological end in view. Tolkien was a social commentator. And he wrote The Hobbit, in particular, as a social commentary on his day. And The Hobbit has one great intrinsic theme. It is this, treasure. If you've read the book, you've seen the film, you know it now. Aha, treasure. That is the theme of The Hobbit. And so The Hobbit, the entire narrative is based on what? These dwarves, these make-believe creatures who are mining, is it the mountain, I should, I'm going to need Benjamin's help here, of Erebor. Is it the lonely mountain? Nod your head, Benjamin, I'm on. Okay, Erebor. And they're mining this mountain in search of wealth, gold. And they fill the caverns of Erebor with inestimable wealth. They have no practical use for it. It doesn't serve any purpose. They're simply greedy little creatures, and they're gathering, amassing a fortune as much as they possibly can. It gains the attention of Smog, a dragon. And this dragon comes looking for this treasure. He kills for it. He destroys for it. And then what does he do once he gains it? He sits on it and actually sleeps, bathes himself in it. He has no practical use for the treasure. He is simply driven, consumed by what? Greed. And then Theron, one of the lords of the dwarves, he decides with his little motley crew, his little band, that they are going to take back Erebor, and they are going to take back this fortune. In the films, it isn't depicted quite right. In the films, there is a noble cause in view, 
of a slant is something of, of a noble cause, a noble endeavor. But you read the book, and Theron and the rest of them are basically driven by one thing. What is it? Greed. They want that treasure back. And they slay the dragon. Well, the dragon is killed. They take back Mount Erebor. And who should arrive at the mountain but kingdoms of humans and elves? And what do they want? Their share in the treasure. And they are about to fight among themselves, an epic battle over this treasure, until a common enemy arrives on the scene, and they turn and they direct their attention toward that common enemy. That is Tolkien's point. Treasure. We are, as human beings, consumed with the pursuit of treasure. His point, it's a social commentary on the day in which he lived and on our day. Very applicable. We are prepared to sacrifice life and limb in pursuit of what we value. Now, check my words. Nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with pursuing treasure. Some of you are staring at me with a startled look on my face. Bear with me. Don't check out. There is nothing wrong with sacrificing, being willing to sacrifice life and limb in the pursuit of what we value. The issue is this, as long as we value the right thing. As long as our treasure is actually true treasure, that brings us to Colossians chapter 2. And follow along as I read the first three verses for us. For I want you to know, says the Apostle Paul, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now go back with me to the first verse. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. It's a city close to Colossae, modern day Turkey, and for all who have not seen me. Face to face. I can't remember which morning this week, this past week. It was either Wednesday or Thursday. I was uh, sitting at my new table in my office. Gone with the old, in with the new. Brian's father built a new meeting table for my office. Quite, quite lovely. And if you want to get a look at it, you can pass by. If you haven't already, you can look, but you cannot touch. I was sitting at this table. Uh, still the smell of wood and, and varnish. And I was staring at this verse, verse 1, just staring at it. I am no mystic, praise God. Uh, Exegetical study, definitions, parsing verbs, figuring out sentences, grammar, purpose, structure, thought flow. But there are times when the smoke clears and all of that is said and done, I'm still staring at a verse and I'm asking myself, what is this all about? This was a case in point, staring at this verse. Uh, There seems to be more here than meets the eye. And on that particular morning, I read it out loud 
imagining, trying to imagine the Apostle Paul saying these words, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And three things left off the page. The first is this. There's a sense of desperation here, isn't there? I want. I want. Here is what I long for. Here is what I yearn after. There is this sense of urgency in those few words. For I want. Paul is about to say something of eternal significance. He is about to utter a statement which is of eternal value, something of weight. He's moved beyond the realm of the trivial and how we need to hear this and how we need to immerse ourselves in this because our lives to a great extent are occupied with the trivial. And here Paul, we just hear it in his voice. We, 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 we capture a sense of it, his urgency. I like glancing at obituaries once in a while. And there's some obituaries I looked at several years ago now, and I've never forgotten them because they were shocking at the time. Uh, one of them said simply this, in reference to a woman who had passed away, she loved television, especially Jeopardy. Okay. That's the obituary, 87-year-old woman. She loved television, especially... I got nothing against Jeopardy, Alex Trebek. He's a Canadian, no problem with that. (laughs) But that's it? That's her 87 years in a sentence? She loved television, especially Jeopardy? And then right beside it, 90-something-odd-year-old man passed away. He loved bingo and coffee and toast at local restaurants. Oh, I don't want to pick a... Well, I guess I do want to pick a fight. That is pathetic. It's sad. And it is pathetic. We have an eternal, immortal, heaven-born soul with the capacity of communing with a boundless limitless, incomprehensible, infinite God. How many of us, our lives are immersed in the trivial? Paul says, oh, I want a sense of urgency, a sense of desperation. Second thing that caught my attention was this, anticipation. I want you to know. And so there's expectation, there's anticipation here, that once I have said what I have said, you will now know something. You're going to perceive it. You're going to grasp it. You're going to understand it. Not simply with your noggin, cognitively. It's not merely cerebral, but you're going to know this. And you know what? It's going to influence the way you live. You know what? It's going to change your life. It's going to impact you forever. And so we have this desperation, voice of desperation, voice of anticipation, and we also hear what? Something of exhaustion. I want you to know how great a struggle Not a mere struggle. How great a struggle I have for you. Exhaustion isn't necessarily a bad thing. If we're exhausted for the right reason. Athlete leaves it all on the court. Exhausted at the end of the game. Fine. Farmer bringing in the harvest. Sun has gone down. Kids are in bed. He's exhausted. He 
takes off his boots at the end of the day. Nothing wrong with that kind of exhaustion. And here Paul says something of this great struggle, contention, battle, turmoil in which he is engaged. And he is exhausted because he is expending himself on their behalf. He is giving himself for something that is of ultimate value. I want you to know how great a struggle. And remember, these are people he's never even met. I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Okay, Paul, that is tremendous. Now let us in on a little secret. What is this struggle all about? What is it that you want them to know? Look at the very first word at the start of verse 2. That. So it's a purpose clause. And so here's what I want you to know, how great a struggle I have, and here is why I struggle. That. Verse 2. Their hearts may be encouraged. So there we have an, an encouraged heart. Being knit together in love. There we have them, united in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance. There we have them, settled in assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. There we have them, rooted in knowledge. That's the outline, by the way, if you're using the sermon notes. One, two, three, four. There we have, summarized four, as in four statements, the, the cause of his great turmoil, his great struggle. Uh, what it is exactly that he wants these people to know. He wants them to be encouraged. There's the first one, encouraged in heart. It's the overarching theme. It's his main goal. It's what he really wants them to understand and, and take to heart and comprehend. What it is to be encouraged in heart. Well, how are they to be encouraged in heart? United in love, settled in assurance, and rooted in knowledge. And so take the first one with me, encouraged in heart. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for all those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts, their inner being, may be encouraged. Paul knows that these believers, and he knew that we living today, all Christians, would be susceptible to what? discouragement. Fascinating. When you read that statement, I want you to know, you might have been expecting Paul to unpack some great theological motif or, or to say something deeply profound. But what has got his attention? What, has, what is preoccupying him? What is the cause of his inner turmoil in this great battle in which he is engaged is that these Christians might actually be encouraged where? In their heart, in their inner being. Because he knows their susceptibility, our susceptibility to discouragement. There are lots of causes of discouragement. Uh, one of the principal causes is carelessness. Uh, carelessness as a Christian will ultimately, it will quickly, ultimately lead to discouragement. I haven't referenced John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress in quite a while, so it's time for a reference to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, there is a scene in, in that spiritual allegory where John Bunyan describes the journey of a man, Christian, 
from the city of destruction to heaven, the celestial city. And he chronicles all of his experiences in his Christian travels. And at one particular point on his journey on the narrow way, Christian is accompanied by a fellow believer named Hopeful. And the two of them are walking along the narrow way, and suddenly that way becomes very difficult. And going uphill, the train, perilous. And uh, they're exerting a lot of energy just to put one foot in front of the other. And then they notice that over the wall, because there's a wall on either side of the narrow way to keep them focused, to keep them on the straight and narrow, they notice that on the other side of the wall, there's a meadow, a very pleasant meadow, but it's aptly named Bypath Meadow. But they think, well, why, why walk here on this difficult road when we could walk right over there on that meadow and, and keep an eye on this road? It'd be much easier over there. And so the two of them scramble over the wall, and there they are walking on Bypath Meadow. Soon what happens? Night sets in. Storm gathers. The rain falls, darkness descends, and they, after a few hours, are completely lost. When morning breaks, they have no idea where they are. They can no longer see the path which they left, and that meadow is no longer pleasant. And soon they stumble upon a man named Giant Despair, and he captures them. He beats them. He throws them in a place called Doubting Castle. And there they languish, day after day after day after day, until Christian finally remembers that at the beginning of his journey, he was handed a key called promise. And after spending some time in prayer, it comes back to him, I have in my pocket a key named promise. And with this key, he unlocks his chains and hopeful's chains. He unlocks the prison doors and they are free from their prison cell. And no sooner than are they free than they find themselves where? Back on the narrow way. Why did they fall into the clutches of giant despair? Why did they find themselves languishing in Doubting Castle? It was because of their carelessness. They decided something appealed to their flesh. It would be easier for me to walk over here. This way is too difficult. Too many challenges. It involves too much discipline. It involves too much exertion. Well, I'll just, I'll just compromise a little here. I'll just, I'll just compromise a little there, and I'll walk over here, keeping in view, of course, the narrow way, but all will be well. And that compromise immediately leads to what? Discouragement. Now, this is no big secret. It's not going to come as a surprise to anyone here today. There are some, perhaps many, in this room right now who are discouraged. You're a Christian. Amen. You've been a Christian for some years. Praise the Lord. And yet you could only describe your experience this day summed up in that word, discouragement. It's just not working for you. It hasn't been working for you for a while. You had to drag yourself here this morning just to be here. The Word of God, it's dry, just a dry cistern, a dry well. Prayer, can't remember the last time I prayed. Christian fellowship, I can take it or leave it. I just, I'm just, it's just dry. And the discouragement. You must ask yourself a, a very serious pointed question. Is it at all possible that the cause of that discouragement is carelessness? I'm speaking very pastorally here. It might not necessarily be. Right? I'm not saying it is. 
But you have to ask the question. You have to examine yourself in the mirror. Say, I am in the state I am in. And I am down in the dumps. I really am. Why is it possible my own carelessness has brought me to this point? Have I compromised somewhere? Have I sinned somewhere? And so I'm speaking very pastorally. I'm trying to shepherd you back onto the narrow way. There you are. You're in the clutches of giant despair. And he's just beating you day after day after day, just laying into you day after day after day. And you're languishing in Doubting Castle. I want to shepherd you back onto the narrow way. Brother, sister, remember you have a promise in your pocket. And the promise is this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is not a boogeyman waiting to get you. God is not sitting there with a big stick just waiting to hit you over the head with it. He is a loving heavenly father who is waiting for his children to call out to him and cry out to him. And we have this wonderful promise. He will never leave you nor forsake you. If the cause of your discouragement is your own carelessness, own up, confess it, acknowledge it, repent of it, and turn to the lover of your soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is equally possible that the cause of discouragement, if yeah, that's me, down in the dumps, but carelessness, no, I, I, I don't see it. I'm discouraged. I mean, there are a host of other reasons. There, uh, you know, life is tough. There's a big surprise. You didn't know that, did you? Life is tough. And life is, is laden with difficulties and disappointments and uh, struggles and valleys. And, you know, there, there is that season, and I've been there, and this is perhaps one of the most difficult. There are simply those seasons of melancholy. There's just no reason. I just don't feel good. I don't. And I know I'm not supposed to trust my feelings. And I've said myself to that a thousand times. But here I am. I just don't feel good. I'm just down. Day after day after day. And I am discouraged. Oh, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, says the Apostle Paul. Why, Paul? That your heart may be encouraged. Oh, tell me how. Shine some light on this darkened soul. It's been so long. Day, I'm not even talking about days. I'm not even talking about weeks. Oh, I wish it had only been weeks. Months, maybe years. Just not. It's just not right. Shine some light, some healing ointment upon my wounds. Where is this encouragement found? He tells us, it is to be united in love, it is to be settled in assurance, and it is to be rooted in knowledge. And so look at that second point with me now, united in love, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. You want to be encouraged? There it is. You need to be united in love, knit together in love. There was a book some years ago, maybe a decade ago, called Love Languages. I won't ask for a show of hands. Yes, I did read it. I don't always dabble in the Puritans once in a while, something different, and it was very different. And in this book, the basic premise of this book is that uh, we all have, we all speak a love language. So for some of us, it's giving, receiving. Some of us, it's physical displays of affection, right? For some of us, it's, it's serving. For some of us, it's very verbal. 
We want, we want people to talk to us and encourage us. Uh, my love language is hugs and kisses of the chocolate variety. Just putting that out there. But we all have this love language. And I think there's probably an element of truth to that, isn't there? You want to hear a great truth? A stupendous truth. God has a love language. It is giving. In this we know God loves us. How? In that he has given his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us. Oh, to be united in that love. We know God loves us. How? Herein God has shown. He's demonstrated it. He's displayed it. How? In that Christ Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. Oh, Christian. This is the, this is the display of his love. It's the display of his love which is actually eternal. His love for his people in Christ Jesus is an eternal love. Even before he created this thing, the universe, and got human history going, before anything ever happened, in God's eye, he had a people in his son, the Lord Jesus, and he made those people the object of his eternal, unchanging, unwavering, unalterable love. And God the Father, God the Son, they covenanted together. It's called the eternal covenant of redemption. And they decided they were going to manifest this love, display this love, and the son agreed for his, on his part to become a man, to take the form of a servant, to live in close to abject poverty, to suffer humiliation and rejection and opposition in this world, and to ultimately lay down his life on behalf of his people, displaying God's eternal love for them in order to secure their salvation from sin, from hell, from judgment, from misery, from death. Herein is God's love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul prays, not here, it's Ephesians 3.17. He prays that we might be rooted, rooted, he says, and the idea is of united or, or built in God's love. What does he mean? He wants us to be rooted in God's love. You think of a root, the trees of a root, uh, the roots of a tree, they, they go deep. And it's by virtue of those roots that the tree receives what? The nutrients it needs to grow. Uh, the moisture it needs to grow and mature. That's the idea Paul is conveying there in Ephesians 3.17. He wants us to be rooted in God's love. Uh, God's love is our vitality. God's love is our life. God's love is our, is our nutrition. It is our sustenance. But he also says he wants us to be grounded in love. The idea there isn't of a tree. It's of a building. And you want to erect a building, first thing you do is you lay a good solid foundation. And then the building goes on top of it, the four walls, and eventually the roof. That's the imagery there. He wants us to be grounded in love, the idea of stability. And so firmly planted vitality, firmly grounded stability in what? God's love. And as we bathe ourselves and immerse ourselves in God's unchanging covenantal love for his people in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is not, praise God, performance-based. Oh, just one amen. It is not performance-based. It's not contingent upon how I'm doing today or what I'm doing today. 
It is contingent on the fact I am one with His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith. Therefore, His love for me does not change because His love for me is the Father's eternal love for His Son. little encouragement there? little encouragement? As we understand and comprehend God's love for us, united in this love, that as we bask in it, His love for us, we are stirred to love Him more and express that love how? In love for one another. So if you're down in the dumps this morning, you need to ask yourself this question. Is is it just possible? And the reason is because you're not united in love. You've lost sight of it. You've just, you've just lost sight of it. It, it just does not uh, excite you like it used to. It isn't as real as it used to be. You need to return to your first love. You need to meditate and dwell upon God's love as revealed and displayed at Calvary's cross and unchanging love for His people, those who are in Christ by faith. And understand that He's a loving, heavenly Father. Yes, He's not pleased with our sin. Yes, He does correct and discipline us. But He is a loving, heavenly Father who always has our spiritual good in view. He always has our eternal good in view. The next thing is settled in assurance. If we want to be encouraged in heart, we must be settled in assurance. And so follow his thought flow still in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to, notice this word, I just noticed it for the first time this morning. Isn't that interesting? I will study texts and passages weeks on end and get into the original languages and dissect it and break it apart. And some things just kind of miss your attention. I was just reading this again with the family this morning before we came out. To reach. And so it's something to to grasp for, right? That's that's what he's trying to picture here. It's something we're, we're, we're trying to attain. We're grabbing for it. To reach what? All the riches. Here's the idea, imagery of wealth and treasure. Of what? Of full assurance of understanding. Settled in assurance. Full assurance of understanding of what? Keep reading. And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The knowledge of God's mystery. The greatest truth ever revealed. Christ, if we're going to be encouraged in heart, we must be settled, we must have reached this full assurance of understanding of God's mystery, which is Christ. Okay, what does that mean? He has already told us in the preceding chapter. We looked at it. Those of us who were here last Sunday, back in verse 27, And there Paul declares it, black and white, very simple, straightforward. Here is the mystery. Here it is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Are you settled in that assurance? Are you fully assured? Have you reached it, attained it? Are you living daily in the reality of it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. I wasn't going to, but now I am going to repeat what I said last week. Three P's in a pod there, right? There's a person. Who's the person? 
Christ. What does Paul say even earlier concerning Christ? He is the image of the invisible God. Meaning what? He is God. In him all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. Not only that, he is the firstborn of all creation. Meaning what? He is supreme over the entire cosmos. How do we know that? Paul tells us. Because in him, through him, and for him, all things were created. He's the creator of all things. But Paul doesn't stop there. We also know he's the firstborn of all creation because he was before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the principle of cohesion that holds the entire universe together. I used to do puzzles, thousand pieces of puzzles. And after I completed a puzzle, what happens? You just break it all apart unless you get what? Glue. You're covered in glue to hold it together. That's the idea there. He holds all things together. The Lord Jesus Christ is the glue that holds the cosmos in place. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only reason why this universe is a cosmos and not a chaos. Here's the mystery. Christ in You, possession, that the creator and sustainer, the hand that made all things is the hand that sustains all things. The power that created all things is the power that holds all things together. In me, as I am in him, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who has entered in and therefore has made me one, With the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the mystical, spiritual union. Therefore, Christ is in me, I am in him. And the third P was a prospect. Christ, the person in you, possession. Here's the prospect. The hope of glory. This world's world's fleeting. This life, boom, here today, gone tomorrow. The hope of glory. That uh, eternity awaits us. That not only is the Lord Jesus Christ the firstborn of all creation, He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. And by His resurrection, He is inaugurated, He has commenced, established a new creation. And all we're waiting for is Him to return and consummate what He's already established. And His return will usher in the resurrection from the dead. The glorification of our bodies. It will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. The renovation of the entire cosmos. And we have this certainty that we're going to participate in that. We have this certainty as the Lord Jesus Christ himself declared. The meek. Oh, what's going to happen to the meek? They shall inherit the earth. We have this certainty. Why? Because Christ is in us the hope of glory. This is the mystery. This is the truth that Paul wants them to get. He wants them to be settled in assurance, fully assured, as to the full significance and meaning of God's mystery, which is Christ. And if they attain to it, oh, if they can reach it, what will happen to their discouragement? It might not completely go away, but I dare say it'll at least make a dent that at least begin to evaporate slightly, won't it? And so again, Christian, friend, you find yourself just, yeah, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus, and I, I love the Lord Jesus, but 
my life's just kind of really pathetic right now and can't make heads or tails out of it. Is it possible this is why? Uh, You are not settled in assurance. You have uh, less than an ample estimation, less than a full appreciation of what that glorious truth means. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then there's a third. Settled in assurance. Here's the third. Rooted in knowledge. And so if we want to be, follow his thought flow again. If we're to be encouraged in heart, we must firstly be united in love. Verse 2. We must be secondly settled in assurance. Also in verse 2. And we must thirdly be rooted in knowledge. Look at the last statement in verse 2. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, brings us into the realm of the third verse, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, rooted in knowledge. I don't think I'm pressing it too hard. Notice four things about this treasure, quickly. Four things about this treasure. First of all, it's an incalculable, Treasure. How do we know that? Look at the word. Treasures. For something, a substance, object, to be deemed a treasure, there are two requirements. The first is is it needs to be precious, doesn't it? It needs to have some value. And so gold is deemed a treasure because it is precious. Dirt isn't because it isn't precious. And so for something to have that designation, treasure, That's the first qualification. It needs to be precious. Gold is precious, dirt isn't. Secondly, it needs to be plentiful. Plentiful. A little speck of gold doesn't constitute a treasure. A big chest full of gold, now that's a treasure. But look at the word Paul carefully employs here. He doesn't say the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. He says the, he makes it plural, Treasures. Not merely an abundance, but a super abundance. It is an incalculable treasure. Notice, secondly, it is an inexhaustible treasure. That little word, all. All the riches, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Inexhaustible. And so you think of those mines, whether it be the strip mines or those shafts, when they go deep down into the earth and they extract precious metals. Eventually, over time, what happens? They exhaust it. They find what they can. They rip it out of the earth. They extract it. They make a huge profit. And when it's all gone, guess what? It's not coming back. It's gone. And they move on. This treasure isn't like that. This treasure is inexhaustible. It's an inexhaustible treasure because the treasure is God who himself is, see where I'm going with this, inexhaustible. So we have a greater chance of holding the stars in the palm of our hand, of measuring the mountains on a scale, of gathering the oceans in a thimble, and of balancing the world's skyscrapers on a needle than we do of exhausting this treasure. It is inexhaustible because God himself is inexhaustible. 
God is limitless. God is boundless. God is infinite. Therefore, this treasure, being God, is itself boundless, limitless, infinite. And here's the wonderful thing. It's found in Christ. It can't be found outside of Christ. Why? Because as Christ alone is the Son of God, the eternal Word of God, who knows God completely and perfectly. And that's why John tells us, states it very clearly, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. Here's the third mark of this treasure. It's incomparable. In whom are hidden all the treasures of what? Incomparable. Wisdom and Knowledge. We see this wisdom and knowledge, incomparable wisdom and knowledge revealed in God's wondrous works. We see it in creation. We see it in His work of providence, how He governs all things. Everything has an appointed end. God is enthroned in the heavens above. He does whatever He pleases. No one can say to God, what have you done or thwart His hand? He is the blessed and only sovereign. And He performs His will among men. And His purposes and His plans are perfect. And they always come to completion and fruition. How? Oh, there's a wonder that defies explanation and defies the finite mind. There is no match between a finite God and a finite mind, a boundless God and a bound man, mind, a limitless God and a limited mind. There is no proportion between them. In His works of creation and His works of providence, we behold the depths of His wisdom and knowledge. And far eclipsing all these, we see how incomparable His knowledge and wisdom is, this treasure in His great and glorious work of redemption. Oh, think about it. We have the divine and the human united, don't we, in Christ? The perfections of deity and the weaknesses of humanity. We have precept and penalty fulfilled in Christ. We have weakness and victory harmonized in Christ, the gospel, the cross. And here we behold such infinite wisdom, the unfolding, the completion of God's plan of salvation in the God-man, Jesus Christ, whereby God's law is satisfied. God's justice is satisfied. The penalty for our sin is completely fulfilled. God's mercy is secured. His wrath is turned away. Everything is harmonized as we are brought into a reconciled state with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Incomparable treasure. Fourthly, it's an incomprehensible treasure in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know what that means? It can't be found. Good luck finding them. They cannot be found, at least not by human effort. You can be as smart as you can be. You can read as many books as you want. You can get as many degrees as you would like. You can become an expert in mathematics, physics, and the sciences, and humanities, and everything else. It will not serve you one iota of good when it comes to the treasures of wisdom and knowledge which are hid in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Paul tells us the natural man 
The natural person does not accept the things of God. Why? They are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised, spiritually discerned. The natural man, the natural woman, the natural person, the unbeliever, the mass of humanity in Adam, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, in abject darkness, foolishness, folly, and these beautiful treasures hidden away in Christ. Now stay with me. You think of what it means to see right now, physical sight. For us to see physically right now, we need two things, don't we? We need light. The sun lights in this room. If there was no light, we would be in absolute darkness. But even if there's light, that's the first thing we need. What else do we need? We need these things to be working. There needs to be light in the eye. So for us to see physically, there must be these two lights. Same thing is true spiritually. For us to see, there must be the light of God's Word, revelation given to us. And there must be, secondly, what? The work of God's Spirit, illumination, whereby He reveals what is hidden, whereby He gives eyes to the blind, ears to the deaf, whereby He removes the stony heart, enabling us not only to see the treasure, but to value it, to esteem it, Like the man in the parable in Matthew 13, do be prepared to sell all that we have to buy the field in which he finds that pearl of inestimable worth, to be ready to sacrifice it all, give it all away, to be considered that all things in this life are but dung in comparison to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and sins forgiven in Christ. My friend, that is spiritual sight and you do not have it. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how many initials you've got after your name. I do not care how intelligent this world might deem us. The the, the wisdom of man is folly, sheer foolishness in comparison to the wisdom of God. And he must, by sovereign grace, give us eyes to see. He must reveal it. That That is why there are some right here this morning who have sat under the preaching of God's word for some time. And you know what? You're bored. You're bored because you're blind. Nothing wrong with what's being said. This is marvelous. You're as blind as a bat. That's why you're bored. Oh, God must give you eyes to see. He's to remove the scales. And there must be a work equal to that of that work That work, that word by which all things were created, there must be a work and a word spoken into the darkness of your heart, the caverns of your soul, whereby you see, wow, I never saw that before. I I, I just had no inkling. Never got it before. Oh, that God would do a work in our midst. Because there are some, there might be many, for all I know, still in that darkness still stuck in that inner chamber, still scoffing, still sitting, daring to sit in judgment over God's Word, not realizing God is not being judged. You are being judged. And not understanding your desperate need of a miracle of sovereign grace to awaken you from that slumber in which you find yourself. This is an incomprehensible 
treasure apart from the work, the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. Now, my friends, there are two obvious points of application, two obvious points of application as far as I'm concerned anyway. Let me be brief with these but pointed. The first is for believers, as always. Christians, all of us, I, I hope, I pray, are you encouraged in heart this day? That's Paul's point. That's the cause of his struggle. That's the cause of his turmoil. Uh, that's why he's expending himself, exhausted in his labors. He's striving after their encouragement. Oh, turn to the truth of God's word if you're discouraged. And immerse yourself in these three precious truths. What it means to be united in love. The eternal love of God. What it means to be settled in assurance concerning the great mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what it means to be rooted in knowledge. To have your values properly directed and to esteem Christ and esteem the fact that in Him is an infinite, bottomless well of wisdom and knowledge. The unbeliever here, I'll be pointed as well. The starting point, you know, friend, it's not rocket science. It's not. It's beautifully simple. There are just some realities you must come to grips with. First is this, you're human. Did you know that? You're human. I knew that, you're human. Yeah, I'm human, but you know what most of us don't get? We're of dust, and to dust we shall return. That's what it means to be human. To be human means you're going to die. And I'm going to die. We are but dust, and to dust we will return. Building on that, uh, we're sinful. You're a sinful human. David cried out in Psalm 51, In iniquity my mother conceived me. He wasn't talking about his mother's iniquity. He was talking about his own iniquity. Conception? Yes, from the moment of conception, born, conceived with what? A heart that is hell-bent. A heart that wants nothing to do with God. At least not the God revealed in Scripture. I'll make my little fanciful idol for me, but not the God revealed in God's Word. A heart riddled and filled with self-love. Build on it, friend. Not only are you human, not only are you a sinful human, uh, you are a condemned sinful human. You are by nature a child of wrath. I've spoken some wonderful things concerning God's love today. Make no mistake, friend. That is a love found in Christ alone. It does not belong to those who are outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, there is nothing but wrath, condemnation, Judgment. And if the Spirit gives you that understanding, then keep building, friend. You need a Savior, obviously, don't you? You need someone who can reconcile you to God. You need someone who can break down the barrier, which is your sin, and break down that barrier by paying the penalty for that sin upon Calvary's cross. And you must, therefore, repent of that sin, heed His command, repenting of that sin and believing in Him. You know, to have faith, I was thinking this through this past week, to have faith isn't to believe you're saved. 
might want to disagree with me on that, but hear me out. To have faith isn't to believe you're saved. To have faith is to believe you're lost and go looking for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That, my friend, is faith. It is to know who you are before a holy God. It is to recognize and grasp your sinful condition. And it is to realize there is no hope for you outside of Christ. It is to believe you are lost. And believing it is to be driven in search of a Savior. And to find that Savior in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Owen penned, faith receives Jesus. Faith looks to Jesus. Comes to Jesus. Flees to Jesus. Leans upon Jesus. Trusts in Jesus. Holds to Jesus. And rests upon Jesus. Is that your experience, my friend? You're an unbeliever, I beg of you. And I command you as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, knowing that in him we find a remedy for the deepest, darkest stain, knowing that in him there is no sin too broad, too deep, too high, knowing there is no sin too vast, there is no mountain and multitude of sins too great, but his blood can blot them all from view. And in Christ you will find a fountain bubbling over of love in God. Forgiveness of sins. And this wonderful revelation of this tremendous mystery. What it means. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Our Father, we do pray that you would save sinners this day. We ask that by your creative power, your almighty might, And your great strength, you would be pleased to work wonders in our midst. That you would be pleased to do a work of creation in our midst. Raising the dead. Awakening those who sleep. Breaking the stony and stubborn heart. And bringing sinners to a full recognition and understanding of the gospel. And what it means to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Equally important, our Father, we pray that you might encourage your people this day, that in your word as it has been unfolded and explained and expounded, that your spirit would now apply it and strengthen the weary, really comfort those who are disheartened. We pray that we might know your abiding presence with us by your word. Might it be a reality in our lives daily, and we seek it from you in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.